Welcome to the Chicago Justice Podcast. I am your host, Tracy Siska. I'm also founder and executive director of the Chicago Justice Project. Today, we feature an interview from our weekly Facebook Live interview series. Our guest this week is Professor Barry Friedman from the Policing Project at New York University Law School. Professor Friedman and I discuss his research paper, Disaggregating the Police Function. In the paper, Friedman pulls apart every aspect of the activities of police officers and questions whether they are the best people to do that function. You can find a link to that study on our website. First, though, I would like to comment about the response from Mayor Lightfoot to the demands from protesters, mainly the defund the police. I believe that the mayor has a habit of too quickly dismissing an idea without first taking the time to consider the range of options that are possible and whether there is a middle ground worth pursuing. Defunding the police has multiple definitions at the moment, so here are the three that I've been following. Reduce the police budget and invest those monies in a range of social services that have better outcomes for poor and underserved communities. For others, it's about the complete abolition and demise of the CPD. For still others, it's about eliminating the CPD while standing up another, more holistic public safety agency reimagined and redesigned from the ground up. While I still continue to work with others on reforming the CPD, I truly believe that the only way to avoid being right back where we are 20 years from now is to replace the CPD with an entirely new public safety agency. Even if we do replace the CPD, the only way that this new public safety agency will come close to achieving what we want it to achieve is by the mayor and the Chicago City Council enacting strong front-end regulations controlling the use of force, weapons they can carry, and technology they can use to surveil communities. Right now, the CPD is under federal court-enforced consent decree that while the holy grail of police accountability mechanisms, they simply have failed to stop police in cities where they have been implemented from abusing and killing our black and brown community members. Chicago policymakers can act immediately and use their legislative powers to force the CPD to comply with the regulations in the consent decree now. The typical consent decree process takes about 10 years or more for the police departments to comply. Communities on the south and west sides of Chicago should not have to endure another 10 years before they feel the changes from the consent decree. Policymakers need to act now, either by forcing in consent decree regulations immediately or by giving the CPD a date for its demise and start the process of standing up a new public safety agency. Now, so in the end, in the beginning of your book, uh, you say policing is basically designed to project force and law. Can you explain that a little bit? Sure. That's my article, Disaggregating the Policing Function. Uh, I have a book too, which talks a lot about front-end accountability, which I gather we're going to talk about. Um, I'm not saying anything new or anything that folks don't understand, or I think the police themselves don't understand, which is that, um, you know, whether it's a lot of noted sociologists and political scientists from the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, or if you look at the belt that a police officer wears, uh, the training they get, they have two primary functions in society. One of them is to maintain order keep the peace that's often said in the statutes that authorize them. And the other is to enforce the law. And that's primarily what they're trained to do and primarily what they're equipped to do. One of the things I, I most loved about this is I think in this article, you were able to tear away and get through a lot of the noise around policing and accountability and everything and really get to some key questions. And one of them early on, is whether or not we're actually getting and achieving public safety by having the police do everything they do or everything they're assigned to do and everything we leave, we, we force them to do. What is your take? Are we getting public safety for all this money we are spending, given everything we're asking these, these men and women to do on the streets? So, you know, I think you have to be thoughtful about what we mean by public safety. I have another mm -hmm. article uh, where I'm talking about that, that topic. Very often when we depart, talk about public safety, what we mean is what I call the protection function, which is that people don't want to be uh, assaulted or deprived of their person and property. Uh, and we look to the police to do that. But one of the things I urge is that we think about public safety in a broader way, that we think about it more capaciously in terms of people who need food and people who need housing, people who need basic medical care, and all of those are important elements of public safety. But even if you focus just on the things to which the police are called uh, and you look at outcomes, what you find is that uh, you get two difficult kind of outcomes. 
One kind of outcome which we hear a lot about is the number of arrests or stops, frisks, searches and whatnot, concerns about racial disparity. Those are, those are serious problems that many people have focused on. But the other thing that I try to get people to focus on in the piece is that police get called to a lot of situations that at best, at best, they can stabilize them, but they can't address them. And that the police would be the first people to say this themselves. I quote a lot of police in the piece that are saying, you know, we're being asked to solve all of society's social problems. And that's not our job. It's not what we're equipped to do. It's not what we're trained to do. Uh, but those things are elements of public safety. So whether it's helping people that have uh, substance abuse problems or people that are suffering from mental difficulties or people that are without shelter, uh, whether it's people that are having incidents of domestic uh, arguments that could turn into domestic violence. On all of these fronts, these are real problems. There are things that society needs to deal with. People in, ch- you know, people in charge, politicians, have often ducked those problems and gone with what I call a one-size-fit-all solution, which is call the cops. And it can come as little surprise to anyone, including the cops, that we don't get optimal solutions. Yeah, it is. It has been a big, on the accountability side over the last 25 years, I've always kind of had one foot in. We were setting the cops up for failure a lot of the times and that they're showing up, even if that we just take, and we'll talk a little more in depth about it, but to bring up an example, like you said, a, a, a domestic argument that... Um, has not resorted to violence yet, but someone, a neighbor hears it and they call the police. The only possible response that the police can try to stabilize it, and that might be something good that, that comes out of it. But besides that, if there is some need in that family, in that relationship that's going on, whether it's housing or, um, income-based or food-based or whatever, they're not going to be, there's no, they're not providing a long-term solution and they're not even providing an avenue to a long-term solution. So I've always been, as part of the accountability, trying to tell people that we're setting the cops up for failure a lot of times. So that's obviously something else um, I liked out of the article, but let's talk a little bit about the training. It seems like they handle, they're being forced to handle so many things, but yet their training doesn't seem is, well, one, is their training adequate to do it? Is it long enough? Does it cover the breadth of issues that they're meant to cover? I've had friends on the Chicago Police Department, and I remember one telling me, it's about 15 years ago, about how one of the things that he really got out of the training is how you needed to stick up for, you needed to cover your, your partner's back, and he needed to stick up for people. That was the one thing he got it. And he still, to today, complains all the time about not having enough yearly training to get advancements and be able to handle what they are. So I just want to hear you talk a little bit about the training. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because you often hear cops and particularly police unions push back against reforms. And the thing that I don't get is that the cops are being disserved. If I were a police officer and people were saying, we think there's a need for reform. We want to give you more training. We want to increase your abilities and your capacity. I think great. I can't think of a time in my life where I've turned down more and better training. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, people pay good money for more and better training. In my article, I, I try to ask the question that I, 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 uh, I also had an editorial about this in the Wall Street Journal recently, and I really think is, is the question we all should be asking, which is, what should first response look like? So the way that you need to think about these problems is that there's initial response and then there's follow-up. And what we do in society most of the time is we initially respond and we try to throw a Band-Aid on something and there isn't any follow-up. And so cops in that way are stabilized. Whether they're the best stabilizers, you know, whether they have the tools to stabilize in the best way, that's a, a difficult question, but that's, that's what they are. What I suggest in the article is that maybe we, we need to reimagine first response, mm-hmm. that we need to actually have a set of first responders with a breadth of training. You know, certainly... Force and law, we can talk about those, but what about mediation skills and social services and social work training and basic EMT training? Uh, You know, in my role as special advisor to the AG in New York, I'm hearing a lot about protesters that were injured. And the question is whether police officers, even if they have to use force, if they have the, the training to then render aid, you know, basic report writing skills. I mean, we could actually talk about traffic enforcement, which I'm fascinated with, and criminal investigation. There's just this range of training that you might want first responders to have, one of which is triage. So I use an analogy of emergency room doctors or paramedical professionals who 
whose job it is to stabilize the situation. You know, emergency room doctors are amazing. You walk into the emergency room with, with cardiac arrest or with a puncture wound or any number of things, and they can do something immediately. But then they also recognize the limits of their capacity and know when to call in specialists. And what we don't really have is a system on the street where when the police show up to deal with the problem, they're, you know, they've got the, they can radio in the team that can come work toward a long-term solution. And so the police will tell you, and there's data to support the fact that cops are asked to come again and again and again to the same address and to the same street, the same neighborhood for the same set of problems, because we're just whipping through the Band-Aid box, putting on one Band-Aid after another, instead of saying, what are the deeper concerns? What are the deeper issues? What is the problem that needs solving? And how do we go about it? And if I could just put in a plug, because I think it's important, yes, you know, we are working in Chicago right now uh, as part of the Neighborhood Policing Initiative to try to change exactly this, to try to enable or even bring back, because it's not a novel concept, problem-solving policing, which is where the police and the community work together to identify root causes and solve those problems. That's really what needs to happen broadly with policing in America. Yeah, there's always been, and Chicago is a great example, where we've, over the last several decades at least, and definitely under Rahm Emanuel's last administration, they just kept sucking resources out of any response. We closed mental health clinics throughout the city. We closed 50 schools in the most, the least advantageous, the least, uh, built communities that could withstand that. We kept pulling out the resources instead of putting them in. I And so a section of your paper talks about unaddressed chronic social harms. And two of them that you talk about are mental illness and substance abuse. And we have a system now broader in the United States is where we, we've turned to criminalizing these, right? Where we're not... And the officers know we had a woman in a neighborhood called Uptown in Chicago years ago that an alderman got in a beef with, but she, the police knew her. She was homeless. She dealt with mental health issues and probably substance abuse issues. And she had been arrested like 200 times, right? But there was no, after the police arrested her, there was no intervention. There was no system to bring in. There was no backup responders to do follow-up to try to treat uh, what was at the core of the problem, which wasn't a, necessarily a policing issue or even a crime issue, but it was the only one the public knows to call. I had a, a longtime source in the apartment high up in the ranks, and he would say, he goes, my troops don't understand. We're the social workers. We're the social work agency of first resort instead of the social work agency of last resort, because all the other agencies haven't um, you can't call them and get them to respond 24 hours a day. What would it look like to have a mental illness and substance abuse, in your opinion? What would it look like to have that follow-up? What would that follow-up look like? Or not even a follow-up. There's a call of someone dealing with mental illness. What does that response ideally look like if there's not an imminent threat of violence or violence already happening? In your judgment, what does that response look like? So, uh, you know, I, I'm going to answer your your question, and it's not a simple answer, but I first, yep. I just want to underscore something that you're saying, because again, I keep saying, you know, cops don't disagree. And there's a reason that I'm stressing yep. that because mm -hmm. we are living in a moment that feels like cops versus everyone else. And, uh, and people on both sides are incredibly upset and incredibly frustrated. And I, and I understand that. And I, have some sympathy for both sides of the story. At the policing project, we work really hard to try to bring people together and find common ground and move forward. And I think even in this incredibly fraught moment, there's the opportunity to do exactly that and exactly on the topics we're discussing. So the International Association of Chiefs of Police, which is a relatively conservative policing agency, mm -hmm. put out a statement about defunding that I, I thought was, you know, somewhat defensive. But in the middle of it, they said, you know, we defunded mental health services. And that's how it all fell into the lap of the police. And that is a fact. I remember our doing that starting in the 1980s during the Reagan administration. And we have defunded homeless services and we have defunded substance abuse services. And we as a society opt always to defund things that people need and opt instead for relying on the police. Now, I don't think, by the way, and I, I'm not an expert, but I don't think there's a one-to-one -one correspondence between the money we take away from programs and the money we give to the police. I actually think we just cut budgets. 
but the but the difficulty here is that we um, that we just cannot keep thinking that we can respond to very complicated public health problems with force and with law. They are public health problems. They are complicated public health problems, and we as a society need to deal with that. Now, I'll also say, and it's you know terribly troubling. The very moment where we're, where where I think people are getting this, we're in the middle of a pandemic, mm-hmm. and municipal budgets are devastated. I mean, they are just devastated. And so I, I'm generally fearful for where we head right now because where there might have been solutions at another time, they are going to be very rare. Um, and uh, and I just think we need to think seriously about how we're going to tackle these problems. I agree with you. I'm very worried about the um, finances of our municipalities, states also and the federal government also, but I'm very worried about the municipalities and what is even, even if there was the desire by the local, you know, local legislators, city councils and stuff to, to find ways or to fund some of these services that we're going to be talking about today. I'm not sure we're going to have the resources available to really do what needs to be done. Another issue I want to talk about that I've long I, said. I just want to, yeah, go. I just want to jump in for a minute. Yep, I, I'm please. sure we're not going to have the resources, and you know, I, I get frustrated, and I am frustrated, and I'm going to not be quiet about that frustration. Uh, we've had fatter times where we did have the resources. So I understand that there's tremendous anger toward the police right now, and I understand why there is that anger, and I'm not seeking to minimize it. Though I think we should be sensible about it. There, there ought to be more anger at public officials who, you know, responding to an electorate that wanted lower taxes and wanted to not be troubled with these social problems, just even in fat times, left us without the resources to help people that needed help. And a lot, and especially when I hear those public officials now pointing fingers at the police, I kind of want to say, where were you over the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years? You know, the police didn't defund mental health services and homelessness and substance abuse and cut resources for, you know, dealing with traffic issues and whatnot. It was public officials. And we ought to be able to cast that responsibility where it belongs. I 100% agree with that. And I have been pushing long and hard for local officials to be held accountable for their financial, the financial lack of regulation or their financial, what they approve in local jurisdictions, especially in Chicago, because it's where we're concentrating right now. To me, there's an absolute correlation between some of the votes they've taken on financial issues, cutting taxes, defunding things, and the situation we now find ourselves in. And I think it's uh, completely hypocritical for them to blame blame this all on the police, because some of them have been in 10, 15, 20 years, and they have a long history of votes on those issues that have have significantly contributed to the situation where you're in. The mayor didn't, in Chicago, for example, the mayor didn't defund mental health all by himself. He did not defund homelessness. He did not fund defund the schools all by himself. Those budgets were voted on. And I, I would love to see those political officials held to account um, and, and to take some ownership over what's been happening. I'm just going to move a little bit to an issue that I have always found uh, for CJP. I've spoken to communities all over Chicago. And one of the things when you get in the most truly disadvantaged communities that I don't think ever makes it into the media or anywhere the left blogosphere, the right blogosphere is this issue. When you talk about over-policing, and there certainly are those issues, there's also this issue that you talk about in your paper about under-policing. The inability some of the things that are going on in these communities is that police aren't necessarily creating public safety, even with the over-policing, right? And you talk a little bit about a domestic violence and sexual assault, but I think it runs the gamut, especially when they're so focused on drug crime. So I want you to, if you could talk a little bit about the under-policing, I'd appreciate it. Sure. I mean, this is the irony of the situation that we are in, which is that the same neighborhoods are both over and under police which, you know, in my view, adds up to being wrongly policed. The neighborhoods that are complaining about police conduct are the ones that often have suffered the greatest violence and crime. And we as a society have had to mess it up pretty badly for those neighborhoods to then say they want the police out. 
but we have messed it up that badly. The question is how do we get it right? Look, everybody wants to be safe. I've never met someone who said, I don't want to be safe. Uh, And so the question is how do we make neighborhoods and communities safe? And I don't believe there's any way to do it without involving the neighbors and the community. And again, we had this model that, you know, you just send in the cops and they'd make it safe, but that's not how neighborhoods work. It's not how my neighborhood worked growing up. I mean, you know, there were a bunch of folks who kept an eye on the neighborhood together, the people that lived there. And sometimes the police were involved, but most of the time the neighbors kept an eye. And we have got to have the mechanisms in place that have cooperation between the police and the communities to make communities safe in the ways that community members think they should be kept safe. They are the ones who should be deciding. And we have just lost track of that model. Yeah, we, we have. And in, in Chicago from the early 90s, it was about community policing. And my issue with it is I, I've, I've attended a bunch of uh, CAPS meetings through, called CAPS in Chicago, meetings throughout the years. And you know, it, it, the meetings are, to some extent, made up of, of older people and they're almost never made up of the f- parts of the families basically that have youth that are in that age from 14 to 25, right? Those families are not part of that process. And we need, we need to find a way to include them, make them feel safe. That whole thing has got to be rethought, you know? And when I did hear that, I, I was in one meeting where I heard, this woman say, my son's hanging out on that corner with those guys that are up to no good. You got, you got to get them off that corner. And I kind of cringed because the cops only have one tool to make that happen. There's not a follow-up process to, to long engagement if he was gang involved to get him out of that gang. Their solution to that, because they are what, who they are, is to go arrest your son, right? And, and unfortunately for, the, for that for that mother, there was really no one else for her to reach out to, to go get that help. And that's a huge problem. Okay. I want to talk about thinking ways of, we're going to talk about different types of defining cops differently. So you have in here a few topics. I want to run through them and I want you to define them quickly for us or talk about the definitions you talk about in your paper, which is cop is crime fighter. What does the public misunderstand about that? What do the police misunderstand about that? That, that's definitely the irony. So, you know, very often we say, you know, we need to get the cops to stop doing all this other stuff so they can fight crime. And they are the folks assigned to fight crime. But, you know, even crime fighting, you need to sort of take apart what that involves and think about it and ask who's the right responder. And is it always a person with gun? Let's start with the simplest of examples, which is, you know, not so much crime, but it's, it's instructive, which is traffic accidents. So New Orleans has done, in my mind, a very wise thing, which is that they've contracted out taking accident reports for motorists. I mean, why are we sending armed cops to take a report in an auto accident where nobody's injured particularly? And basically all we're doing is we're doing work for the insurance companies. I mean, frankly, the insurance companies should have 24-hour adjusters who went out and took that information. They're the ones that are making money off of it. And why are they using up public services? So I, I don't, you know, I'd free up some cop time instantly there. So then take, you know, sort of move up the crime ladder. Well, let's just jump all the way to the top, like a homicide. So at a homicide, you know, it's very rare that the police arrive and there's a perpetrator on the scene. So what do you need then? Well, you need victim services. You need forensics. You need interviews. So again, I'm just going to ask the question. Is the armed cop always the best person to do all that? Forensics has gotten to be extremely complicated. It's science. And we've gotten a lot better at a lot of that. We've learned that a lot of people were convicted on the basis of junk science, which is why you see so many, uh, you know, conviction reversals and, um, and even prosecutor's offices that have conviction integrity units. It's because of a concern that we have not, science has not kept up with criminal forensics. So that's not going to be an armed cop in most instances. That's a, you know, forensics team that either is within the police department or working with a medical examiner or some other entity that are, that are trained scientists and they've been trained in preserving evidence. Victim services. It's not obvious that, you know, when 
when there are emotionally traumatized people, that armed officers are the right answer for that, as opposed to social workers. And it's not even obvious that in terms of taking witness statements, I mean, we don't go out of our way to train cops very well about doing that kind of investigating. You just kind of learn on the job. And so, you know, yet again, there's just reason to question the way we've constructed policing agencies and whether we're adapting them in the best way to the work that needs to be done. Now, I do want to make one other point, if you'll just allow me, which is Please. if I was a cop listening to this, I'd go, you know, okay, what's my job? Well, we shouldn't be naive about the other side of the equation, which is the necessity to have force present at times. So uh, I know a lot of folks want to abolish the police, and I understand why they talk about that. But, you know, bad things do happen in society. And they are problems that get resolved, unfortunately, with force or its presence. So let's take some clear examples and then work to some tougher ones. The nightclub shooting in Orlando. Mm-hmm. You know, active shooter situations in schools. They're terrifying. I have school-age kids. Uh, a lot of people do. And they're all, and you know, we could talk about guns at some point. That's not my specialty, but I certainly understand the issues. But those things happen. And you need a response. And if your agenda is to abolish or defund the police, one of the questions you need to be able to answer is how you're going to respond. But now let's just take a more common example, you know, far more common, because I do think sometimes we drive the rhetoric with uncommon examples, though active shooter problems are all too real here in the United States. But take uh, a domestic argument. So, so dispatch of police officers often is for either a domestic violence incident or a domestic argument, uh, the difference being that violence has broken out in the former and not the latter. And think about a domestic argument. And think about particularly an address where the police have been called several times for domestic arguments. So everybody knows there's a problem at that household of some sort, whatever's driving it. And, you know, my guess is that if the cops have come again and again, they're not solving the problem. That's the broader point here. And so we ought to think about who has a shot at solving the problem, mediation and social work and figuring out what's going on in that household. But at the same time, domestic arguments often turn volatile very quickly. A lot of people get injured or killed in those situations. So we want to prevent that. And the only prevention may be force. And so the question is, you know, what do we do about that problem? And again, if you want to abolish or defund the police, you need to answer that question. There, there may be answers. I'm not saying that there aren't, but I think the questions have to be asked. But I think what we need to do is think about the role that the police play as a background role rather than a foreground role. In a lot of the incidents, the problem with the police is that they're the only ones that get dispatched. They're right there in the foreground. And the question isn't for a lot of these incidents whether even if you think force needs to be deployed, it ought to be in the background. There if needed, but not as the problem solver. Sometimes it needs to be way in the background. So for people that are mentally troubled, very often a show of force is actually an aggravating incident. In other situations, the presence of force may be, calming is the wrong word, but, you know, a stabilizing influence. So I would like to imagine a world in which we didn't need force, but I'm not sure I live in that world. But that doesn't mean that we don't deploy it in unthinking ways because we definitely do. Yeah, I... I am for rethinking, you know, when this, especially when you're in the reform movement at all, you have this issue now with definitions about what does defund the police mean and whether it's an abolitionist perspective or whether it's something else. I, I think it would be a welcomed, I think it's a welcomed exercise to have cities, local jurisdictions rethinking the definition of public safety and whether the, the police department as situated currently fits that definition and what else can be done. I hope so. And whether that is standing up a new organization that includes other first responders and eliminating the police department as it sits now, there could be an argument for that. But I think all of this, when you hear a lot of this rhetoric, it does not have the second step which is what are you going to do about violence that is occurring every day? Uh, The media doesn't cover domestic violence well. It doesn't cover sexual assault well. 
Um, we, we've done research on it in Chicago and the Tribune Sun-Times a year ago. We're about to publish in a couple months a review of three years of all the media coverage in Chicago on those issues. And I, I think the public doesn't understand the amount of um, violence and near violence that occurs in homes pretty routinely in our cities. And the fact that police are constantly responding to those things incredibly can be incredibly dangerous for police officers too. You would think unions and officers would welcome some sort of effort to stand up other entities that could find solutions there. I know I've talked to police for 25 years also in Chicago and their constant frustration about going back to the same places all the time um, and risking their lives to do it, even though they know they're only may going to bring on most cases, maybe if they arrest someone, a couple of days of safety unless the person actually goes, follows through and someone goes to jail. But that's necessarily helping the family necessarily if there's a better solution to be found where we could keep that person on the street and keep the family intact or separated and going through their lives without us having to pay to incarcerate them. I want to turn really quickly to training. You had in your study, in the, in the research paper, a breakdown of what the training was by topic in the Nashville Academy, I think it was in 2017. And it was interesting, 65% of their training was on force and law. Yet so much of what they do every day doesn't necessarily require either one. And I also, there's some information going on around online just about how in other countries in Europe, how much longer some of the training is compared to how we train people in Chicago. I think I might be wrong, but it's my instinct to think the academy in Chicago is 180 days. I might be wrong on that, but I think that's pretty close to what it is. And I've seen like in um, Norway and other countries around there, it, it might be a year or two or three. How would these, how would do you think policing, how could we change policing in America if, if academies were a year or two years? So, you know, two answers to that. And again, cops or people who want to be cops should welcome this, you know, it'd be great to have more training. Now, I know that it's true in Europe that the training is much longer. I don't know that it's substantially different. And so I'm curious about that. You know, is it just more attention to force and law, but doing it in a different way? And I'd like to learn more myself. I do know because at the policing project, we obtained uh, training materials from a number of departments, uh, which we need to get organized in some fashion and show the world but it's not it's not no news to anybody who lives in the world in this space which is you know most of the training is about the use of force and law enforcement and again that shouldn't be a surprise and it's not necessarily a bad thing you know often people will say well there's always these this x number of hours devoted to how to use a pistol and not enough to de-escalation well i agree on the de-escalation front 100 percent but it's not like I want to cheat training on the use of firearms either. We may need more of it so that they get deployed in ways that people don't get shot or the people if shot don't get killed. I mean, it, like we, we want to stop the violence. Everybody wants to stop the violence. But in my reimagined world, we're training people to just be a whole new kind of first responder. They look different. They'd be outfitted differently. They would have a different reward system for sure. They would be reward, rewarded for successfully and optimally solving social problems to which they are called. They would be rewarded for not having to use law enforcement resources. Uh, the criminal justice system is insanely expensive. You know, people who want to just get tough with criminal justice all the time do not understand the cost of prison beds and the entire criminal justice machinery. It, it often blows me away when I look at those numbers. And we could be doing a lot more with that money. And I, again, I'm not the kind of person that doesn't believe we don't need a criminal justice system, though I do think the word just in it often, justice in it is often inaccurate for what we get. But there will be a need, unfortunately, in society to constrain some folks and to have some criminal sanctions. But we're just off the charts as a country about how much of that we do, and we do a lot of it for not very serious things. And there's... Some of it, even if it is serious, where we could use other mechanisms like restorative justice or where we could have avoided the problems with better training on the front end. And so it all needs rethinking in a serious way. And the question is whether we as a society have the courage to actually do that hard work. 
Yeah, I think it is not. I agree with you on 100%, but I most strongly agree with this, the cost issue. I know the Chicago Council of, Council of Lawyers of the Appleseed Project in Chicago did research, and they talked to people at the, the clerk of the court's office, and they said it cost them $2,600 to open a court file for every criminal case that went into the courts. And it's like, wow. I mean, you're talking hundreds of thousands, a couple hundred thousand arrests, I think, in Cook County or misdemeanor cases. I'm going to say misdemeanor cases. That is massive amounts of money that for some reason society we're able to ignore because I think we're, we're driven by politics and the media to think any alternative is just going to make us less safe, regardless of whether that actually helps us or not. It's always been a problem I've had trying to get people to listen and to understand what the actual costs of all this involved are. You know, they, they don't want to um, look at that. I don't think if you look at the average person in Illinois would have any idea that I think we spend around 25, uh, approximately $29,000 per year to incarcerate someone. Magnificent amount, especially when there might be alternatives, especially for the drug people that have substance abuse issues, it might be much easier and much less expensive and much more successful just to give them treatment on the long run. That is not, um, that's being too soft though. So as we talk about disaggregating the functions, I wanted you, you had a couple categories I want to talk about before we finish up here. The mediator cop, is that a thing? Is that, are they well enough trained at it? Because I know we talk about it and we want to think with all this new de-escalation that's coming in that we're really having, there's going to be a real big impact on that, on the street. What are your thoughts on that? So, you know, I just finally came to realize from going on ride-alongs with police that so much of that job is just keeping the peace. When you look at statutes, you know, they, that authorize policing agencies, they're often instructed to, you know, maintain order and keep the peace. And people call the cops for all kinds of things where trouble's breaking out. And I've just seen amazing cops at resolving those situations, you know, where they just manage to talk people down and figure out a solution. Everybody goes back to their world and, uh, and I admire them. And, you know, one of the problems I have though, is that I, every time I'm at a policing agency and somebody asks, you know, and I asked to go and ride along, or they asked me to go and ride along. I'm invariably, you know, walked into the precinct and somebody says, here's officer uh, A and B, they're, they're the best we have. And I go out with A and B and they're awesome. And I often think, you know, I kind of like to just draw names out of a hat actually and go out with officers, you know, P and Q who might not be quite as awesome because I'm well aware from my work that bad things happen that not all these things get mediated well, that people end up getting arrested. And so, okay, it's possible in some number of instances that problems will be solved. And I'm not just talking about solved at the moment and stabilized. And then we like, you know, got to call in the other services, but actually resolved with somebody who's a good mediator. And I was in France once and I was at a bakery and somebody walked in with a pair of black trousers and a red shirt and on the shirt. It said in French, not that my French is very good <laughs> mediation agent. And so I went up in my very bad French and tried to have a conversation with the gentleman and did some research when I got back. And it turns out in France, and they don't do it very well, to be honest, you know, you could do it a lot better than they're pulling it off. There's lots of complaints about this, but in France, they actually train people to be mediators and then they put them out in, you know, public parks and train stations and places and complicated neighborhoods where turns out people have issues with issues they can't resolve. And I thought, how clever. And in our examination, you know, cops get very little mediation training. But we know a lot about mediation. There's a lot of people who are experts in it. It involves a certain amount of emotional intelligence, a certain amount of being able to relate to the people that you're mediating, that your goal is to avoid, you know, some difficulty by doing that mediation. And so um, it's a big part of the job. And I'm going to guess most cops would just say, amen, it is a huge part of my job just trying to talk to people to solve problems. And, you know, I, I, they probably could use some more training, a lot more perhaps on that front. 
and a reward system that, I mean, this is part of the problem with policing is we don't have a reward system to reward people for being the kind of good cops that people want to have and admire. We just, we don't have a way for doing that. And in so many ways, that system is broken. I used to call it, before meeting my PhD health economist wife, I used to call it, we, we, we don't have a good reward system. And in the econ- economics field, it, they say it's all about incentives. And I think, and I, I think that is true that we have, um, I know when units have gone bad in the CPD, like the special operations section went bad, there was a, they had a chalkboard in their special office, they had a chalkboard that showed how many guns every cop got off the street. And if you were on the bottom of that list, you got hazed for not doing your job, right? Because that was the measurement, right? That was the measurement for their job. So go ahead. No, I mean, that's, that's, look, so this is a problem we just smacked into as a society and we, we haven't solved, which is, you know, we used to reward cops for enforcement action. So it was no wonder that we got lots of stops and searches and frisks and arrests because that's what they got, that's what got counted. You know, what you measure is what you get, uh, especially with cops. Cops would complain about it, but that was the system. So, you know, now what do you, what do you do? I remember when we were talking about setting up the neighborhood policing initiative in Chicago, we had a big convening of advocates and activists and community members and CPD folks. And at one point in the conversation, we were talking about the subject and people said, you know, what you should measure are waves. Like the number of times cops wave at somebody or somebody wave at a cop. And, you know, you kind of chuckle at that and think that's unrealistic, but you get the point, which is that we haven't figured out a way to reward the behavior that we want. And if you can't reward it, if you can't identify it, describe it and reward it, you will not get it. And so what we desperately need to do is think of a, of a way to, to do that. And again, we're trying to do that with our neighborhood policing initiative in Chicago, which is to keep track of problems that are brought to uh, a district coordinating officer's attention and whether they're solved. And that is, that is the kind of reward system we should have. Also, if I can just say another word, you know, one of the problems with policing agencies is that they're relatively flat organizations. Their organization chart is not very hierarchical. I mean, it's hierarchical eventually, but there aren't a lot of steps on the ladder. There aren't a lot of ways to get promoted or to have benefits that, uh, you know, again, incentivize the kind of behavior that we want. I mean, yes, economists would tell us this. And we need to solve that problem, whether it's, you know, vacation time or training opportunities or cash. And one of the things that's been on my mind a lot is just the ability to move laterally from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, which is we don't have enough lateral movement in this country of good cops. So you're always struck with the incentive structure within your jurisdiction. Instead of thinking, you know, I don't know if I love the culture here, but I, think there's a better policing culture in another place and i'd like to maybe go be a commander there someday be a deputy chief there we don't have a mark you know we have a market in chiefs they're like nba players who recruit them in from the outside but pretty much below the chief we don't do that and i think that's just a huge mistake it's interesting we had a chicago we chicago had a shooting recently um on the subway platform red line subway in chicago and the cops were on the train because there was an uptick in, in crime and violence on the CTA, the transit system there. And so they put cops on, on the train to kind of stabilize that issue or take care of that issue. And we had this incident where these two officers s- tried to stop someone for walking between the cars, which when I was a kid, it was allowable and I would do it. We would do it all the time. They stopped him and he didn't want to give him his ID. It turns out, I think he had a little bit of drugs on him and it, it de-evolved into uh, a shooting where they shot him on the platform and then he got away from them, was going up the escalator and they shot up the escalator at him and shot him in the back. And I got a text right away after that happened from some police officers. And they all said, this is all about generating activity. This should have never, this is a horrible shooting, but also is about generating activity. And in the police department, I read a deposition years ago, they got something called the humper activity. It's an internal term, obviously. But what have you done? What's the activity you've been able to generate? 
right? And that's how they would be able to get on special units, tag teams, and other units. It's by your humper activity. And that humper activity, them needing to go back and showing that they not only, it it wasn't good enough to show that they deterred crime by being there. They had to show some paperwork for having generated, generating some paperwork on their time. And that led to a shooting. And I have always been of the thought that because police have guns, there's always the possibility every interaction is going to end up with a shooting, depending on the response. So we need to limit some of those actions, thus thus reducing the number of uh, uh, possible incidents that can result in a shooting. And to me, this is a perfect example. So I think it gets a lot to this idea around rewarding. We weren't rewarding them for keeping the crime numbers down. That wasn't good enough, right? And making the public feel safe on the train. So if you got comments. Well, so first of all, I don't, you know, I think rewarding based on crime numbers is the police take too much credit when the crime numbers go down and don't want the responsibility when the crime numbers go up. And the fact of the matter is there's a certain amount they can do and there's a lot they can't. There are a lot of other societal factors that come into play there. But, you know, there's a long history that leads to this sort of Humber phenomenon that you're describing, which is just that um, back in the day when we first had police, there was no way to keep track of them. Theodore Roosevelt, who obviously later was president, but at one point was the commissioner of the New York Police Department, talks with horror about going out to see what the cops were doing and finding them, you know, sleeping on corners, drunk in Mm -hmm. bars. So then we invented call boxes where you could walk around and take your key and, you know, go in there and crank it so that everybody knew that you'd been on patrol. Then eventually we got radio patrol, but there's always been this anxiety about, you know, are cops doing the thing they need to be doing? And so we measure activity. And I, you know, I don't know that there's an easy answer to this. If I had it, I'd be telling you, but it is a serious problem that we have, which is how do we incentivize the behavior from police officers that is what we want from folks out on the street. Okay, to wrap this up, I have one last question. If you were going to recommend, and I'm sure you've been asked to do this already, but if you were to recommend to a big city department, the top 10 or 15 largest police departments in the country, what are the top three things you think the steps they should take immediately to to, I, I've been asked a lot of, by journalists and not just basic reforms, but reforms that are going to put us in a place where 20 years from now, there's a good chance we're not going to be in the situation we're in now. You know, I've done a lot of back-end police accountability in Chicago, and I'm sad to say, and it hurts for me to say it, but I was really hoping we wouldn't be in this situation in Chicago, and we found ourselves again, and the back-end stuff didn't work, obviously. So if you were going to You've been in this a long time. You're an expert in it. If you're going to say top two or three things, what would they, what those suggestions be? Well, the first, which we've talked about not at all, is, is the idea we have at the Policing Project about front-end accountability. Yes. So you, like everybody else that ever talks to me about back-end accountability, is disappointed. And yet the public always demands it. So, you know, back-end accountability is something goes wrong and you want to hold somebody responsible. Let's have a criminal prosecution of a cop. Let's have a civil rights action. Let's have a civilian review board. Let's have a federal investigation. Let's have a state investigation. Let's have a monitor. Let's have body cameras. We add one layer after another of review at the back-end and nobody is ever happy. Why would that be? Well, the back-end never is going to work unless you have a good front-end. And in the rest of society in all of the rest of society, we put in place rules and procedures and policies. And those rules and procedures and policies are public and transparent and people have a voice in what they look like. And only when you have the front end clear do you have any chance of a back end working. But the miracle is if you have a clear front end, you don't have so many things go wrong either. And, you know, I, look, I know that the police oppose a lot of quote unquote reform. They don't, they don't want legislatures to do anything. They oppose them all the time. I understand why. I mean, I don't like being told what to do, and you don't like being told what to do, and nobody likes being told what to do. But sometimes being told what to do is structure that helps life go more smoothly. You know, I, I, I live in a family, and there are rules, including what I'm supposed to do. And I have my responsibilities and my chores and I don't always like them, but it creates structure for me and for my wife and my kids. And that's true in every, every organization and every unit, which is that you need that kind of front end structure 
And I, the police fight it tooth and nail. And yet if we could wave a magic wand and do it, I think that everything would be fine. So I, you know, I wish we could do that. And the policing project along with another of other centers where we have academics who actually work with policing agencies and with communities have released a bunch of reforms that ought to just be done. And on top of that, you know, I think that the police ought to embrace the kind of neighborhood policing that we're trying to put in place in Chicago. And it means breaking down the tactical units and the specialized units and getting cops out on the street with time off of their radios to get to relate to the communities that they are policing so that people are working cooperatively together. That's number two. And then I think number three is to just dream, to have some vision. You know, people say all the time, the only thing that cops hate worse than things the way they are is things changing. But (laughs) things can't get better than the way they are if we don't change them. And to do that, I wish that the police and the police unions and the police officials would just say, you know, this is crappy for us too. We're going to stop being defensive about it. We're all going to get together and figure out how we can create a better society. And I believe there is a better one for everybody involved. The economist term for that is a Pareto improvement where nobody is hurt and everybody finds an improved situation. And I believe it exists. Uh, and And it saddens me that we, that there are all these obstacles, often political obstacles, to getting to that better world. I would like to thank Professor Friedman for taking the time to sit down with us for this discussion. There is little doubt that society can and should rethink our addiction having the police be the first responders for all of society's ills. This is clearly a mistake and leads to very negative outcomes for both the police and community members. Just a quick note that our Facebook Live interview series occurs every Wednesday from 12 to 1 p.m. Central. This coming week, we feature a discussion with Sharon Fairley, who was the former chief administrator at both the Independent Police Review Authority and the Civilian Office of Police Accountability. If you'd like to support this podcast or CJP's transparency work, you can do so at our website or through our Patreon campaign. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll be back with you next week.